this point in our service, every Sunday we come together as a church and come before God and pray for the things that are going on in our world, things that are going on in our community, and for the role of his church, us and other churches in that. I feel especially led this morning to pray uh, for the subject that affects some of us and affects many people in our nation, and that is uh, abuse and those that suffer from it. So would you join me, please, as we just beseech our Father on this tough topic. God, we uh, come before you understanding that um, you are good because you tell us that in your word and because we've experienced that. And And part of your goodness is that you identify with the broken. Uh, We are all broken, you tell us. Some of us are more conscious and aware of it at times than others, but we are all broken. And, And you have identified with us, and we celebrate the gospel, the good news that you have identified with broken people, and you bring healing to where there is brokenness. A great cost to yourself, and not because you should, but just because that's who you are. And so, Father, as we celebrate that good news of the gospel, we want to pray for the particular form of brokenness that many people in our nation experience and having been victims of abuse of some sort, uh, verbal, physical, sexual, emotional, there are so many different ways that very real and legitimate forms of abuse are inflicted by people on others, and it leaves long-lasting effects and scars uh, and results. And, Father God, we certainly want to pray for our nation um, We're probably all aware that there's quite a national conversation that's been happening around this subject for a couple of years now in particular, and we just pray, Father God, for our country and that you would guide that conversation. Uh, We would pray that there would be less heat and more light. We pray that these very real and important topics, somehow that you would do what we cannot and guide the thinking of millions of people to result um, in greater healing and greater justice. And Father, much closer to home, where we do live, we want to pray this morning for for ourselves and for our church and our family of churches that we are partnered together with. And I, I pray, Father God, that you would make the churches in our city including this church and starting with this church, uh, a real antidote to some of the general toxicity that can come sometimes as a result of either ignoring these issues or trying to talk about them. They're uncomfortable. We feel that uncomfortableness even now as we're praying. I certainly feel it. And yet, Father God, I pray that you would help us to be people who understand truth and grace because that reflects who you are. Um, People who are willing to acknowledge truth and speak truth and yet do it from a gracious and passionate Uh, compassionate perspective. Certainly, Father, in showing compassion at the very least uh, by hearing and seeking to understand rather than dismissing those whose experiences may be different from ours. Even if we don't always understand it or don't always see things the same way, God, the importance of hearing and caring, we celebrate you for doing that with us. Let us do it with one another. And we also pray, Father God, that you would bring healing through the power of your spirit in people's lives, that you would bring healing through the compassionate community that we are seeking to continue to pursue at this church, as we simply love and care for one another, listen, speak the truths of scripture, and lead one another back to the truths of scripture, and coach and encourage one another as we depend on you. God, may this continue to be a place where relationships are real and centered on the gospel so that honesty um, can be expressed and received, Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truths of Scripture even now to be a more gospel-shaped people, to celebrate the gospel however you would lead us to do that in living it with one another, that we would be the kind of redemptive people that believe firmly in your power and lead one another to the foot of the cross, and we pray for transformed lives and healing so that people would see the power of the cross and come to eternal life in you for your glory. Father, even now as we turn the corner and and get ready to open your word and study it, I I pray that you would do that work in us, that you would help us to not, uh, as you say in the Bible, just be hearers of the word, but also doers of it, that that you would communicate and speak to each person through what is shared today, not my words, my opinions, my take, because none of those things matter, but God, your words, your opinions, your take matter because they are absolute and they are true. And they are life-giving, so God, would you speak now through your word, and would you give us a spirit to hear what you have to say and transform us, we pray, in your son's holy name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
And thank you, team, for leading us this morning in music and song, worship. Uh, Good to gather as a church and sing. It's good to gather as a church in other ways. So just before we dive into scripture, let me uh, echo uh, Jordan's invitation earlier to come tonight to the family gathering. Only three times a year uh, we gather. If you are a member of Harvest, we are asking you especially to make it a priority uh, because that's where our members come together and do family business. That's why we call it a family gathering. The family comes together. One of the things we do at family gatherings that is really fun is we get to introduce new members, people who have formally joined our church over the last number of months. We have several to introduce tonight. It's just going to be a fun night of celebrating, uh, of singing, of eating, always a good thing, of praying together, and of celebrating. So come. If you're not a member, you're invited. Everybody is invited to these. We would love you to see kind of the the family from another angle and the hopes that you too will formally join our church and become part of what we're doing here at Harvest. So we look forward to seeing you this evening. Uh, As we resume a series of sermons that we just started last Sunday in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, we're doing a seven-week sort of flyover of this book of Scripture. And just as we're getting ready to get back into that, let me ask you, um, have you ever had the experience where maybe you know there's a problem somewhere? Could be with your car, (laughs) could be with um, your house, could be with your health, could be whatever. Like, you know there's a problem Um, but you kind of don't really want to face it. And you maybe perhaps ignore it for a while because procrastination fixes everything, right? And then you finally get around to like, okay, I'm going to go whatever, take care of this thing or go see the doctor or, you know, whatever the thing is. And you finally kind of crack the issue open and say, I'm going to start dealing with this. And you realize, oh no, the problem is like worse than I thought, you know? Whether it's termites in your rafters, Or a diagnosis that you maybe is a little bit more serious and your doctor's a little more alarmed than you, you know, really think he or she ought to be, you know, or whatever. There's that sense of like, oh, I guess I kind of knew there was an issue here, but really? I had that experience a few years ago. Um, Some of you know that for a few years, actually quite a few years, uh, my daily driver was a 1974 International Scout. Uh, bright orange. Everybody in Hillsboro and Beaverton always knew where I was at all times. Just look for the orange glow driving down the street. And uh, I kind of enjoyed that. I was learning how to work on old cars and stuff, and it was fun. And eventually, I was kind of getting to the place where like, okay, this isn't a hobby anymore, and it was getting ready to be time to sell it. But I had fixed it up quite a bit. It was in much better shape than when I'd left it. And one of the projects I'd always wanted to do on this was uh, some of the interior work. And I'd done like engine work and stuff like that. Not me, but actually people that know what they're doing was teaching how to do engine work. Um, but I really wanted to do like the carpet. I, I bought a brand new carpet kit for this thing, and I was going to rip out the old kind of vinyl floor mats and put in all new carpeting and insulation and all this kind of stuff. It was going to be awesome. I never got around to it, never got around to it. And I said, I got to get this in before I sell it. The fear, though, when you own a vehicle that old, particularly in the rainy Pacific Northwest that Jordan's come to love, um, <laughs> is that roads are wet. Thank God they're not salted. But nevertheless... Rust is always a bit of a concern when your vehicle is like as old as you are and you live in a rainy climate, right? And they made everything out of steel back then. And so I knew there was a little bit of rust here and there, but I really didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. And I thought, ah, if I could touch up or patch up, there's ways you can deal with that kind of stuff. And hopefully I can just pull everything out, kind of do a little touch up and then just lay all this new stuff in and it'll be awesome. And there's always that niggling fear in the back of your mind that what if there's more than a little bit? Nah, come on. I got to get this thing sold, right? So eventually, the day of reckoning came. I had everything I needed, and I cut the floor mats, and I pulled them back along with the old insulating pad, and I had a bit of a problem. (laughs) Everything else on this truck was just running great, but there were several significant areas where there was rust that just had to be dealt with, and I thought, I have no idea how to handle this problem, nor do I have the inclination or the money to pay somebody to fix it because it would have been very expensive, and I was in a bind. Uh, Thankfully, I know a guy named Tony, so Tony, if you're out there this morning, thank you very much. Um, As a welder, we cut out floors. He showed me how to weld in new floor pans. I got it all fixed, got the carpet and insulation in. It was sweet, and I finally sold it. There's that feeling of dread, though, where it's like, what? in the world, like this is way worse than I thought, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do about it now, and I don't necessarily think I'm equipped for it, and I don't know where that leaves me. That's really the situation that the book of Ezekiel was speaking into. This is back in the 6th century BC, about 600 years before the time of Jesus. 
And in today's passage, God is going to tell Ezekiel that the Israelites are facing judgment for their sin. Now, they already sort of knew that, but the problem is actually much worse and much more pervasive than they understood or were willing to admit. We're going to get another one of these apocalyptic visions this morning. And in this vision, God is sort of pulling back the limitations of our human point of view, and he's showing Ezekiel what's going on from God's point of view. The, the 35,000 foot level where you see everything and where there is nothing hidden and, 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 and nothing sort of justified or rationalized or excused away. We're going to see the truth and we're going to see how pervasive it is. That's the purpose of the vision. God sort of peels back the floor mats and says, you think there's a tiny bit of rust? I'm going to show you this whole thing is rusted out and it is virtually irredeemable. That's where we're headed this morning. The book of Ezekiel started, just to uh, remind us, if you were here last week, with a Jewish priest named Ezekiel who had been deported to Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was sort of dominating the world at this point, and they had the Israelites under their thumb, along with a lot of other people groups uh, and kingdoms. And Ezekiel is there in Babylon, and he gets this crazy vision of God and his glory, which sort of signified like the presence of God. In, in sort of Old Testament terms. And, and the prophets before Ezekiel had never really experienced anything like this. This was a new phenomenon in the Old Testament. God is communicating in a new and different way because this is happening at a very significant point in redemptive history. We're gonna see why. God is changing the rules of the game. And so he makes this announcement through a new and very powerful way. Now this, this vision of God's glory posed a key question that we saw last week. Why is God's presence in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, instead of in Jerusalem, in the temple where it belonged according to the arrangement God had made with his people? In fact, you may recall last week we, we pointed out the book of Ezekiel is really built and structured around three questions, and it answers all three of them. What is God's glory or presence doing away from the temple in Jerusalem? That's the first question, and the first 11 chapters of the book sort of answer that. Secondly, uh, what does this mean for us now, God's people, the Israelites, back in the 6th century BC? And then thirdly, what hope is going to be left for our future? Because little hint, spoiler alert, the answer to the second question is really bad. <laughs> the answer to the second question is really bad. So third question, what hope does that leave for us now? And the book of Ezekiel is built around this. Last week we showed this graphic that's up on the screens now. It was put together by one of our members, Lori Miller. Thank you, Lori. Uh, we distributed copies of this, paper copies last week. I hope you still have them. If you do, uh, let me encourage you to continue to bring them back to church every Sunday for the next six Sundays. It will help you track along. If you didn't happen to get a copy of that, we have extras and they're on the tables in the back of the worship center. You can grab one on your way out. I wouldn't be super offended if you got up and went and got one right now, so feel free to do that if you want to. This is kind of a visual roadmap, as it were, of the book of Ezekiel. And the three sections of the book are very clear. They're the first 11 chapters. God is answering that first question. Why has my glory left the temple? The second section is really the majority of the book, chapters 12 through 33, and it's all about the present judgment. What does that mean for us now? That means we're in deep, dark trouble. <laughs> That's what that means for us now, because we have hard hearts. And so we're going to do two more sermons in a couple of weeks on that section of the book. And then lastly, what hope is there for the future? And we're going to do the final three sermons from these final uh, 14 or so chapters of the book of Ezekiel, 15 chapters, I guess, which is all about the future hope that God promises to give his people. So that's where we're headed. Today we are on the second sermon of the series, the second and last sermon of that first section, dealing with this question, why did God's glory leave the temple? Chapter 3 ended, as we saw last week, with God telling Ezekiel that his job is going to be to speak a message of judgment to his fellow Israelites, and they won't want to hear it. And so that's where the story picks up. We find Ezekiel in chapters 4 and 5 starting to give a message of judgment, announcing that Jerusalem will face the same fate as the rest of Israel. It will fall, the Babylonians will conquer it, and it will be destroyed. And at God's instruction, Ezekiel communicates this message in some really colorful ways. He tells Ezekiel not just to speak the words, but to actually act them out, to demonstrate the reality that God's people are going to be facing serious judgment. And so we're going to move just kind of briefly through chapters, uh, the first couple chapters, because we want to land on the next vision, which doesn't start till chapter 8. So let me just make a couple brief comments about the uh, prophetic messages that Ezekiel gives. If you're reading through 
Ezekiel chapter 4, one of the things God tells him to do is to sort of build a toy model of Jerusalem being attacked. Now, they didn't have like Legos and cool stuff back then. Uh, I'm not sure that God wouldn't have used them if he'd had them back then. I mean, you know, you can build your own little Lego castle and assault it, and like if that's what you like doing, know that that's in the Bible. You heard it here on Sunday first. That's okay. Rather than Legos, Ezekiel takes a brick. God tells him to do this, and he carves an image of the city of Jerusalem on that brick, and he's like, put the brick in the middle of the town on the ground where everybody can see it, and build siege works against it. So he piles up these little siege mounds. He has these little sticks and these rocks that are like the surrounding invading armies. So it's this kind of toy model of Jerusalem being attacked. And then to make it even sort of more dramatic, he tells Ezekiel, I want you to lay on your left side in front of this model every day, one day for each year of judgment, which turned out to be 390 years, so it's 390 days. Every day, Ezekiel, here's your job. Go out and lay down on your left side. And so he does this. On the ground in front of this model and prophesy judgment to the people laying on the ground on your left side every day for 14, 13 months and then flip over on your right side and do it for another month and a half. Now I had this idea that maybe I'll do this for one second for like every day. I'll, I'll be here for 390 seconds preaching to you and I realized that's six and a half minutes. I'm not gonna do that. That's crazy. But that's what he does, because he's saying, like, this is how long it's going to Every day, you could be, these people walking out, there's Ezekiel, and he's laying on the ground. That guy's a nutcase. What is he doing? And during this time, he has very meager rations. God tells him exactly how much he can eat, and it's hardly anything. He says, make your own bread. You get essentially the equivalent of four slices of bread every day. That's your food for 14 months. Imagine just opening up a normal life, uh, loaf of bread, taking out four slices. That's all you get to eat all day long. And furthermore, he says, you get a limited amount of water. Works out to about 24 to 28 ounces. He says, this is your water supply per day, your water ration every day in a hot, desert, dry climate. That's all you get to drink. Every single day for 14 months, he drinks this much water, eats four loaves of bread. All of this is God's way of saying, you're going to be fugitives. You're going to be refugees. You're going to be starving because the city of Jerusalem is going to fall. He moves on in chapter 5, and he starts doing more demonstrative things again at God's behest. God tells him to take a sword, one of these short one-handed swords that they would often use in combat in those days, and he cuts all the hair of his head and his beard off with a sword, and then he takes a third of the hair in the middle of the town, and he burns it in a fire. I bet that smelled really good. (laughs) What does that smell? Oh, it's just Ezekiel doing his thing again. I mean, God is like trying to connect with his people in so many different ways, visually, through smell and through the spoken word to say, a third of you, or or many of you, not necessarily exactly a third, but a whole bunch of you are going to be burned in the fire. Israelites are going to die when the city of Jerusalem is attacked, destroyed, and burned. He takes a second third of the hair, and he's walking around the town, and he's just like chopping it in pieces with this sword to show the people that a bunch of us who don't die in the fire are going to die by the sword when the invading Babylonian armies come. And lastly, he takes the final third of it and he scatters it to the wind. A little puff of wind comes and he just throws the the hair up there and it blows away and he says everybody who survives the fire and the sword is going to be scattered like refugees. All of this is to show God's people that judgment is coming. Now why? Why is God going to judge his people this way? All of this is happening in chapter 6 and 7 because of idolatry because of idolatry. They are dividing their hearts between the worship of God and the worship of idols. God's people. Think about that for a minute. God's people. People have already known God and they've experienced his love. People who know his law and have seen in their own history the goodness of God and they pledged their loyalty to him. That's the people who have taken the glory and the honor that belongs to God alone, and they have given it to false gods and false idols of the nations around them. This is what we call syncretism. It's combining the worship of God with the worship of other false ideologies and other gods. And God's heart has been broken in anguish for centuries over his people. As he puts it in chapter 6, Uh, verse 9, I'll start in verse 8. 
God says, yet, after prophesying that a whole bunch of the Israelites are going to die, he says, I will leave some of you alive, uh, Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 8, when you, are, have, um, when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the other countries, then those of you who do escape will remember me among the nations where you are captive, and listen to how God describes it, and how I have been broken. I've been broken, God says, over their whoring heart, their unfaithful, disloyal heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. God says, like, like a, a husband who has an unfaithful wife or a wife who has an unfaithful husband that goes and chases prostitutes, he says, so you, my people, have taken all of my goodness and you have betrayed me and it has broken my heart. That's why you're in this bind. Now, that leads us to where we want to focus this morning, chapters 8 through 11, which is the next apocalyptic vision that Ezekiel gets. And it sort of ends the beginning of the book, this answer to the question, why did God's glory leave the temple? This is another apocalyptic vision. It's about a year and a half after the first one that we read about in chapter one last week. Remember, Ezekiel's been busy for a year and a half lying on his side right? <laughs> He's had a job to do. So when that's finally done, when he finally does all that stuff God tells him to do, and he does it for as long as God tells him to do it, he's there and he gets another one of these crazy visions where he goes into almost trance-like state. It's probably not a really good word for it because it's not like his brain was disconnected. He's just like taken up into almost a waking dream-like state that is being guided and directed by God. Again, a very new and unusual and shocking way for God to reveal himself even to one of his prophets. And the second vision shows the Israelites what their sinful lives look like from God's perspective. So we're going to walk through a couple of highlights over the next couple of minutes, but keep that in mind. That's where it's all going. That's what the point of the whole thing is. It's to show the Israelites what their sin looks like from God's perspective. They already see it from their perspective, and they can ignore it, and they can rationalize it, and they can explain it away. God says, I'm going to show you what it really looks like from an objective point of view. Chapter 8, um, it's kind of funny actually. God grabs Ezekiel in this vision literally by the hair and yanks him up off the earth. Uh, he describes that, chapter 8, verse 2. Um, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. If you've read chapter 1, you're recognizing this is the humanoid form he saw on the throne of God in the first vision. So this is clearly a visionary representation of God. And this God comes to him and puts out the form of a hand, verse 3, and he took me by my hair, a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So already there's this crazy sense of like God goes, hey, Ezekiel, come here, I want to show you something. <laughs> Grabs him by the scruff of the head, zips him over to Jerusalem in a vision. I mean, he's literally, physically still in Babylon, but he's in this vision now flying to Jerusalem hundreds of miles away. And what he sees is God's glory in the temple where it belongs. Verse 4, behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there once he gets to the temple, like the vision I had seen in the valley, the vision of chapter 1 the vision of the glory that he saw in Babylon. So what God is doing in this vision is he's like rewinding the tape. Whoop! Let's go back there. <laughs> you just saw this vision of my glory in Babylon and you said, what in the world is God's glory doing away from the temple? I'm going to give you another vision that's going to show you why I left the temple and what that means for you, my people. So that's what he's doing in these next couple of chapters. He's kind of rewinding the tape and transporting Ezekiel back in time a little bit, as it were, and definitely across distance to say, let me show you why I left. I'm going to answer the question. The second vision is going to answer the question the first vision posed. Why did God's glory leave the temple? And so for all of chapter 8, what happens is God gives Ezekiel like a helicopter tour of the temple complex in Jerusalem. If you've ever seen um, uh, when a natural disaster strikes an area, a tsunami hits or, or a massive earthquake or a, a tornado rips through a town and, and after it's all said and done, they'll put, you know, like the governor or if necessary, the president or some kind of um, government official in a helicopter and the newspaper uh, people are there and the news people are and they're snapping pictures of him and, and the president or the governor is, is like looking out the window at the disaster and trying to take in the scope of it. And then they'll land the helicopter and some local dignitaries will take whoever it is, the prime minister, the governor, the president, and, and take him or her around and kind of tour the disaster so that the statesman or the stateswoman can get their own sense of what really happened because they're the one who's going to you know, activate relief and um, 
uh, funding and that kind of thing. That sort of idea of, of a big tour of a disaster area is exactly what's happening in Ezekiel chapter 8. God takes the prophet Ezekiel and he says, let me put you in my helicopter, as it were. I'm going to fly you and zoom you around the temple and I'm going to show you a spiritual disaster zone. This is horrible and I want you to see it from my point of view. So throughout chapter 8, he makes four stops. We already saw in verse 3 the first stop. I kind of skipped over it. Let's go back and read it now. Uh, he took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of the God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway to the inner court, that is a courtyard that's surrounding the temple building, that faces north, where there was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. That's Old Testament prophet speak for saying there was an idol set up there for God's people to come publicly worship a Canaanite god, small g, right at the entrance of the temple courtyard of the worship of God. So that's the first stop. And God says to Ezekiel, you think that's bad? Let me show you something even more. In verse 5, um, he, uh, he sees this image of jealousy again, this, this idol, he points it out. And then he says, second stop, verse 7, he brings him to an entrance in the wall. These were thick walls where they sometimes had rooms built inside of them. And he says, there's a little hole in the wall. I want you to dig through it and go inside there and see what's being done in the innermost secret chamber. So in this vision, Ezekiel does that. He digs through the hole in the wall and he goes through there and he sees 70 of Israel's leaders the priests and the governors and the leaders, and they're all gathering around and worshiping these Egyptian animal gods in an inner sanctuary, uh, or sorry, an inner room of the temple complex in Jerusalem. It's basically a picture of the Israelites looking for help against the invading Babylonian armies from the Egyptian gods by worshiping the gods of Egypt right there in the temple where God Almighty was to be worshiped rather than looking to God for help. God says, you think that's bad enough? Let me show you even more. He takes him, uh, the tour continues. Verse uh, 14, he brings me out back to the entrance of the north gate of the house. So now we're at one of the inner courtyards of the temple complex. And he sees there a bunch of Israelite women who are weeping after the Canaanite god Tammuz. This was an ancient form of worship of a kind of a virility um, or seasonal sort of god. I'm not quite sure who Tammuz was, but it had something to do with that. The bottom line is these Israelite women are shown engaging in the worship of false gods right there in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem. And God says, you think that's bad enough? Let me give you one more stop. So verse 16 on down, he brings him one more place to the inner courtyard right now in the temple building, the center of God's glory, right between the temple building and the altar where the animal sacrifices used to be offered to God. And he sees a picture of 25 Israelites and their backs are to the temple. They're not looking, they're not paying attention to God at all. And instead, they're bowing down and worshiping the sun as it rises. Again, another ancient form of worship, worshiping the sun as if it was a god. Like a head of state being flown around in a helicopter after a major disaster, Ezekiel is being taken on a guided tour of spiritual catastrophe. God says, this is what my people are doing. This is what the religious people are doing. This is what the people of God are doing. How does this look from God's point of view? And so what God is doing is he is turning the original question of the book on its head. The original question of the book was, God, how could you have left the temple in Jerusalem? And God answers that question by taking Ezekiel on this tour and he flips the question over and he says, in light of what's happening in the temple of Jerusalem, Ezekiel, you tell me, how could I stay? That's the real question. How could I stay? I am God Almighty, and if my name is going to be this profane, do you expect me to just sit there and take that? These are my people. They know better. What a God's eye tour of our personal religious devotion reveal. What would a God's eye tour of the worship of our church show? Like if there's total objectivity. No rationalizing away, no explaining away, no justifying. Would God find us showing up and, and, and singing songs about how he is the greatest treasure of all while we go into our secret room inside the wall and nurse our pornography addiction where nobody else can look and see because we desperately think we need that even while we say all we need is you, Jesus. 
Would a God's eye tour of my life reveal a yearning for money and fame and security and the lifestyle that that can build me, all the while I'm saying that this kingdom is, that this world is not my home and the kingdom of God is what matters to me. And then Monday through Friday, I go pursue building my own kingdom in this world. Well, surely, but that's what everybody does. I mean, come on, God. So easy to rationalize a divided heart. Would a God's eye tour of my life reveal a love of God and a celebration of his mercy while I harbor bitter jealousy and bitter anger toward those who have hurt me? I want to get rid of this woman. She's no good. I want to ditch this man. Men are worthless. I refuse to forgive my spouse because they don't deserve it. All the while, I celebrate the fact that God forgave me when I didn't deserve it. What would a God's eye view of our lives reveal for perhaps the greatest American lie of all? Would a God's eye view of my life reveal that I believe I'm all about, my life belongs to Christ and to his glory and to display the glory of Christ. And so I say that and I preach it and I sing it and yet I'm really all about having my best life now as one famous pseudo-Christian author has put it in a best-selling book. It's not just Joel Osteen though that says that. This whole idea that God is out to help you have the best life you can have right now and he is your handmaiden to make you happy right now is pervasive amongst Christian literature and it's very difficult to ferret out sometimes unless you've got your discerning antenna up. Where is my heart really focused? Well, with all of this idolatry going on, God's presence departs in judgment and that's what the final couple chapters of our, this passage this morning are about. The theme that kind of ties the rest of this vision together, which goes on for a couple of chapters, it ends in chapter 11, starts at chapter 8, so four chapters long, and the theme that ties it all together is the movement of the glory or the presence of God that Ezekiel sees in this visionary experience. We already noted in chapter 8 verse 4 that God's glory was in the temple where it belonged, quote unquote, when Ezekiel arrived on the scene. Now, if you go over to chapter 10, I'm going to trace the path of God's glory here together for a moment. In chapter 10, verse uh, 1, Ezekiel says, I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. If you were here with us last week reading the vision of chapter 1, this is all very familiar. Uh, we saw this sort of angel chariot, if you will, that was carrying God. These angels, that, that's what the word cherubim means, by the way. It's just a Hebrew word that means the praising ones, the ones who give praise. It's one of the words the Bible uses to refer to, to angels. So you see these, these angelic beings, and they're supporting this platform, and on the platform is a throne, and on the throne is this glorious being who is clearly God. It's like God, and they've got these wheels next to them, and the thing is on the move. It's like God in, is, is in the, the throne. The king has his own chariot, and he's off on the move, and, and Ezekiel you'll saw this in Babylon. Well, now he sees the same chariot, as it were, but it's, it doesn't have God on it. He says the throne is there, but the glory of God is not seated on the throne yet. The glory of God is already inside the temple. So it's like God's chariot is parked outside the temple. So it, it's setting up this sort of picture that, that like the king is in his throne room, which for God in the old covenant would have been inside the innermost sanctuary of the temple, and he has summoned his chariot because he's about to take off. And so the chariot's parked outside getting ready for him. Now, in verse 3, Ezekiel sees um, the glory of God move. Now, the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. They're parked right outside. When this angel went in, we won't go into those details, and a cloud filled the inner court. Look at verse 4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with a cloud, and the court, the courtyard outside the temple building, was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Two important details are noted here. First of all, God's glory, his presence, moves. It moves from the innermost sanctuary where his throne is, the Ark of the Covenant, and it moves out to the doorstep. He's leaving the building. Secondly, the building is filled with a cloud and with bright light. This is all going back to Exodus. When God originally appeared on Mount Sinai, it was with a cloud and flashes of light. That was sort of the imagery that God has always used to announce his presence to his people. When they first created the tabernacle, the portable temple building, and put the Ark of the Covenant in it, God's glory descended on that, and it was his way of saying, I'm going to be with you in a special way. And there was a cloud that filled the sanctuary and bright light. 
That same experience got repeated later when Solomon built the permanent temple building in 1 Kings. That's the one Ezekiel is now seeing in this vision. Or once again, when they dedicated the temple, God's glory appeared and a cloud filled it. So why does Ezekiel see those images now? God is signaling, according to very common Old Testament language, that there are certain things that happen when I show up and you're seeing all of those things get reversed now because I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm done with this. There's some more judgment, some more visions. Drop down to verse 18 of chapter 10. We're just following the path of God's glory. Then the glory of the Lord, which represents his presence, went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. God now leaves the doorstep. He's left the building and he mounts his chariot throne. He's now on the throne, the way Ezekiel saw him in chapter 1. And then verse 19 as the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes, and they went out and the wheels beside them, and they stood by the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord of Israel, God of Israel was over them. God's glory literally lifts up off the earth and floats across the courtyard. He's just about to leave the temple complex, and he makes one last pause there. God has mounted his chariot, and he is now moving away. This would have been a devastating vision for any Old Testament Jew to see. God is abandoning us. He'd always promised to be with us, and he showed us that in a lot of ways, and he is now showing us the exact opposite. He is undoing his presence. He's leaving the temple. That was the place where we met with God. He's no longer there to be met with. God makes one final promise in chapter 11 that sets up the rest of the book. The first half of chapter 11, the glory of God pauses over the outer wall of the temple, and he basically says, you guys are gonna be judged. That's the first half of chapter 11. The city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. This temple is going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be gone. The people in chapter 11 are like, hey, as long as we're inside the city of Jerusalem, we've got its walls and we've got the temple, God, we're going to be okay. God's going to take care of us. God's like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. You cannot rely on this temple anymore to save you. I've left it. I've abandoned it. That's the first half of the chapter. And that sets up the whole middle part of the book, the present judgment. The second half of the chapter is a promise of future hope. That's why we put a beautiful little flower in the middle of a parched desert because that's Ezekiel's message. Yeah, God tells his people, it's bad, it's awful right now, but I will regather my people. And he says at the end of chapter 11, look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 19, when my people come back together at some point in the future, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, which is the cause of all of this sin, and instead I will give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep and obey my rules. This is the first of many promises where God says, I'm not just in the business of saving people, I'm in the business of radically transforming them. Sinful, self-righteous people to become God-worshiping, God-loving people who then find the reason for which they were made and find eternal life and joy. And with that announcement, the vision closes. Let's go to the end of our passage this morning, chapter 11. Verse 22, then after this statement, the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city known as the Mount of Olives. If you're familiar with geography right around Jerusalem, God's glory leaves the city, floats over the Kidron Valley and stops on the Mount of Olives heading out east toward Babylon, incidentally. And at that point, the vision closes. Ezekiel now knows why the glory of God left Jerusalem and ended up in Babylon. His people now know why they are being judged. God has abandoned the ark. He's abandoned the temple. He's abandoned the priesthood. All of the entire covenant, we call the old covenant, the covenant that God had made with Moses, because it utterly failed, because it didn't work. It didn't produce a people who loved God with all of their hearts and souls. And despite God's second and third and fourth and twelfth and 175th chances, people still live for themselves, not for him, even in the midst of their religiosity. Friends, there are messages and lessons for us today. The nature of the human heart hasn't changed in 2,600 years. And all of the second and third and 175th chances are now finally at an end. The Israelites know why God has disowned the old way of worshiping him, and they know it's their fault. So the three main questions of Ezekiel have already been answered in this introductory 11 chapters to the book for his contemporaries, for Jewish people who were alive in the 6th century B.C. 
during the Babylonian exile. Why did God abandon his temple? Because of syncretism and idolatry. Because people have hard hearts that do not worship him with undivided joy. Secondly, what does this mean for us? It means we're in for a long period of judgment. It means bad news. At least for a while, there's a dry and parched desert. That's going to be our lives together for a while as the debt of our sin finally comes due. Third question, is there any hope then that remains? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And it's not in getting a 176th chance to get it right this time. It lies in God's promise that he will radically recreate the human heart so that we will be fundamentally different kinds of people and relate to him rightly as a result. Last week, we asked the question, we saw God's glory leaving the temple, would God ever abandon me that way? And the answer we started to give last week was, well, sure, maybe, if we fail to honor his glory. Let's go back to that now that the vision, the introduction of the book is complete and look at that again. What is God actually leaving? Did God abandon his promise here in Ezekiel, his promise to redeem a people and recreate the earth and rid it of sin and make it the beautiful place he always intended it to be? Did God abandon that promise and go back on his word? No. No, absolutely not. God never goes back on his word. He never abandons his promise. And we see him spending the last 15 chapters of this book showing that he's going to fulfill his promise in a new way. That leads us to the second question. If God didn't abandon his promise, then what does it mean that he left the temple? Has he abandoned the temple? Has he abandoned that old arrangement of how people are supposed to worship God? The answer to that, I believe, unequivocally is yes. Yes. God is done with the temple. He's done with the Israelite priesthood. He's done with the animal sacrifices. He's done with giving us the law of Moses and just telling us to follow it. And he's done with the whole thing. He's washed his hands of it. He's finished with it. I struggle to figure out how God could make that point even more clear than he has in Scripture. He has absolutely abandoned his covenant. And he promises to institute a new one that's going to work. Which leads us back to our question. Will God abandon his people? I think the best answer to that is maybe. <laughs> um, it's hard to give that a definitive yes and no. It depends. It depends on whether they persist in clinging to the sinking ship of self-justifying religious devotion. Because that ship is sinking and God torpedoed it once and for all in Ezekiel's day. And yet over and over and over again, we go back to God. It's human nature. We want religion. We want rules to follow. We want to know what boxes we have to check off to be okay with God and to earn our ticket to heaven. And God is desperately trying to get us to understand that's not how it works. You don't need a new list with boxes to check off. You need a heart transplant. The problem is much more serious than you realize. And I'm going to pull back the covers and show you how pervasive sin is. But the good news if you're willing to see that, is that there is hope. I do know somebody who can fix that problem, even if I can't. I know somebody who can fix that problem. Our Lord makes this very point in Matthew chapter 23. I want to end our time this morning by looking at some of the words of Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, take just a minute with me. In Matthew chapter 23. Matthew's the first book in your New Testament. If you've got a Bible, let me have you turn there. There's a very interesting moment in the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus essentially reenacts the vision that we just read about in Ezekiel. I wish I had time to go through all the details and we don't, so we'll be brief, but I want you to see this because it displays the beautiful unity of the Bible's message and how our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Chapter 23 of Matthew is known uh, by Bible scholars as the seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus issues these, these blistering critiques of the, the Jewish religious leaders of his day for leading people astray and leading them away from the truths of God. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them a, 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 a den of, of venomous vipers. He calls them all these it's just intense names. I mean, he, his climactic confrontation with the religious leaders of his day is in an end, and he's just given them the business, which is why they very soon after this grabbed him and had him executed. But at the end of chapter 23, look at verse 37. 
Jesus makes a lament not just over the leaders, but over Jerusalem, which really represents his whole people. And he says, 600 years after the time of Ezekiel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. You insist on continuing to reject my message of salvation by grace. And so what he says to them, a devastating judgment, verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus uttered those words in the shadow of the temple in Jerusalem in the first century. It had been annihilated by the Babylonians. A little one had been rebuilt by the exiles. But by Jesus' day, Herod had built the biggest and grandest and glorious Jewish temple that had ever existed. And that's what was there in Jesus' day. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was glorious. It was amazing. And standing in the wake of that temple, Jesus says to them, your house, not my house, not God's house, your house, your religion, the thing you're putting your hope in, your house has left you desolate. It's empty. I've left. The life-giving presence of God has abandoned this place. And then he turns around and he leaves. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out all the buildings of the temple. They're like, Jesus, isn't this thing amazing? Check this place out. This is awesome. Well, for first century arch- uh, architectural standards, it was awesome. And they're just kind of caught up in that, despite what he just told them. But he answered them, you see all of these buildings, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one left here. One stone upon another will not be thrown down And look what happens in verse 3. He leaves the temple and he sits. Where does he sit? Say it out loud, church. Where does Jesus sit? On the Mount of Olives. Does that ring a bell? From Ezekiel? The mountain that is to the east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. Jesus takes his disciples over there and he says, he announces that he's leaving the temple And the glory, the embodiment of God himself, Jesus Christ, exits the temple to the east, goes across the Kidron Valley, and sits on the Mount of Olives, just like happened in Ezekiel. You see, Jesus is reenacting the Old Testament vision to make the point to his disciples. This is what God said would happen. There's a new way to relate to me. And when he sits down, he begins telling his disciples how worthless the temple is, how it will be destroyed, no matter how impressive it is. It will be destroyed within their lifetimes, which, by the way, it was. This is the early 30s A.D. when Jesus is saying this. In A.D. 70, the Romans invaded Jerusalem and completely annihilated the Jewish temple, literally tore it down so that not a single stone was standing, which is why there is no Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today, and there has not been for 2,000 years. So many of you know there's actually a Muslim shrine there now, the Dome of the Rock, along with um, the oldest or one of the oldest Muslim mosques in the world over on one side of the temple Uh, what used to be the temple complex. And then he goes on and he starts to talk in Matthew chapter 24, we won't go through it, about how God will not only judge this temple, but he will judge all evil at the end of days, which he's picking up all this language from the book of Ezekiel. We haven't gotten there yet. We'll get there in coming weeks, so that's enough of that for now. But then in chapters 25 and 26, Jesus answers the question that if you care about God, you're probably asking right now, which is, okay, so what does all that mean? (laughs) Like for me. What he says to them is be ready. Be ready. He tells several parables. The parable of the, um, the, the wedding feast and the parable of the talents to describe these situations where God's servants are waiting for him to return and their hope is in the return of their king and their master. You see, everything Ezekiel is telling us is pointing toward a savior who will come and inaugurate a whole new way to relate to God that results in a changed heart, not just outwardly religious good living. It's only those who receive a new heart from Christ. We'll end with this. Earlier we asked how a God's eye tour of our own personal religious devotion might look. If you've got any sense of um, honesty and, and um, objectivity with regard to yourself, that's a sobering question. That's a sobering question. The kind of, of tour where nothing is hidden or nothing is rationalized away. And the Bible's consistent message from Old Testament to New is that life, real, true, 
life, both now and forever, comes only with brokenness. The brokenness to admit, God, I, I've got nothing. I desperately need you to give me that new heart. And that is what Jesus Christ, as God incarnate, came to do in fulfillment of everything God had said before to keep his promise. It's a surrender that refuses to hide anymore. It refuses to keep things cloaked and to justify and to rationalize and live my own life for myself. It's a surrender that is open and willing to acknowledge that God is right about the hardness of my heart. My tendency to minimize and, 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 and justify my tendency to mix devotion to Jesus with the pursuit of pornography or alcohol or vain beauty or a comfortable retirement or career success or any one of a dozen other idols that we as modern Americans so easily cling to and sometimes it's so much a part of our cultural air that we breathe, we find difficulty even realizing we're clinging to them. And we set them up right next to our Bibles in our hearts and we never even see it because we've been led to believe that true devotion to Christ can include a love of money, lustful passions, of self-determination or your best life now. It can't. True life begins every day by willingly admitting, God, my heart is a spiritual disaster area and I know it, you know it, I'm not gonna pretend it's not true. God says, at last, for you, true life can begin. Because at last you're ready to jump off of that sinking ship. Don't cling to it like a rat and drown when it goes down. Not everybody, Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we just studied this past summer, not everybody who says to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just religious good people that are gonna get to heaven. Jesus says, you've got to let me radically transform your heart. And it begins with letting go of your own hardness and admitting, God, you're right and getting up and living every day acknowledging, God, you are right about the spiritual disaster area that is my heart. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? And above all, Jesus, I am begging you, would you give me a new heart that loves you, that sees your infinite worth as the most beautiful thing that there is so that I'm naturally drawn to worship you over all things. Friends, you dare to pray that prayer? God will work a miracle that is far more dramatic than any kind of visionary experience that a couple Old Testament prophets had. He will radically make you new. And may he continue to do that in the lives of people in this church. That we would display not a, a, an arrogance that says to the world around us, we're better than you. But we would display a humility that says, we know we're probably worse. We serve a great God. Would you come and find life as we are finding it? in him to pray with me father god as our music team comes back to lead us to sing in response to what we've heard i pray that you would meet us here as your people and just even in these few moments as i'm praying and we have a few moments of reflection and silence i don't know where with the number of people in this room this message hits each one of us probably every one of us at a different place some of us probably dismiss it as nonsense others of us may be angry some of us may recognize truth and beauty in it god this is your word we simply present it before ourselves and ask you to use it to bring life to where there is death and hope to where there is brokenness. Jesus, change us, change me where I need to be changed that I might more uh, honestly and accurately reflect the truth of who you are, not of who I am, and find the deepest joy that can be found in that fact. Receive our praise now as a people who are delighted to acknowledge that our lives are spiritual disaster areas and we're not trying to clean them up on our own. We are begging you for your supernatural transformation. Do that work in us for our good and your glory, we pray. Amen.